Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager. And before we get into the pod today, I have a trigger warning. Uh, The book we're about to discuss uh, will focus content on themes of suicide and eating disorders. Um, So if you have young ones with you, maybe save this podcast for later. Um, And if the content is not for you, head to booktopia.com.au forward slash blog, where you can find all the latest and greatest book news, reviews, and our full back catalogue of other podcasts. And I will give the number for Lifeline. If you want to talk to someone anywhere in Australia, it's a free call, 13 11 14. That is 13 11 14, and I'll repeat that number at the end. Um, And now to the podcast itself. Joining me for this interview is Booktopia's Kids and Way Category Manager and Criminal Mastermind, Sarah McDooling. Hi, Sarah. Uh, I like that introduction. I'm good. How are you? (laughs) Excellent. Um, And now our guest, Benjamin Stevenson, award-winning stand-up comedian and author. His first novel, Greenlight, was shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Award for Best Debut Crime Fiction. He's also a sellout comedian, uh, selling out um, shows in uh, Melbourne International Comedy Festival and Edinburgh. He's also been on TV. And if that's not enough, he also works at Curtis Brown, one of Australia's leading literary agencies. Benjamin Stevenson, how are you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Good, thanks. Nice to meet you guys digitally. Yes. I'm, a sla- I'm a slashy is what they call it, apparently, when you, when you do a lot of things in different paths. A slasher, uh... if you will. <laughs> yeah. <it's easy. laughs> well, I guess, yeah, because I write crime novels. But, um, yeah, agent slash writer slash comedian slash Raconteur. Yeah, renaissance man. <laughs> <laughs> um, how have you been? How's, um, how's lockdown going for you? And uh, how does it feel to have a book coming out amongst all this? Uh, surprisingly, I'm pretty excited by it. I think that at the start of lockdown, there was this kind of huge overbearing, oh, God, what is happening to the world? I actually got sent home on a plane during the middle of a series of gigs in Adelaide and then we were then going to go to Melbourne and then right now I would be at the Edinburgh Fringe. So what it's actually done though is it's enabled me to focus more on on the book and my writing sides because I'm not traipsing around the world. So that's actually been quite positive and it's nice being in the country in the week leading up to my book because normally my book's published in September and I get back um on august 31st from the Edinburgh fringe so yeah it's it's kind of cool to be in and amongst the excitement is the way that i'm seeing seeing covid that's my that's, silver lining that's a nice silver lining you can focus on the book itself i mean you know it's a you know it's a um a real emergency when they evacuate you from adelaide yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean the the funny thing was that we were performing at the adelaide fringe festival and these kind of things about COVID started coming out. Oh, well, you can't have, you know, 1.5 metre social distancing. You can't have more than 10 people in a room. And all of the stand-up comedians are looking at each other. It's like, there's never more than 10 people in my room. What are, what's the problem? <laughs> I'm about to go to the Edinburgh Fringe and play to two people in a dungeon all month in the rain. I think we'll be socially <laughs> distant. Um, we must talk about this new novel, Either Side of Midnight. Um, this is this is an easy um, sell for me because uh, if you just describe the opening of your novel, um, I can't imagine 
that there'll be many people who aren't sold and uh, uh, just be in it to read it. Um, can you very quickly take us through the kind of breathtaking opening moments of your new book? Yeah, absolutely. I will tell you before I describe it that I wrote the opening chapter and then I sort of knew it was good and then I couldn't figure out the plot that went along with the rest of the book for like another six months. And so I just oh, sat there with this opening chapter that I thought, yeah, this is a great hook. How is it a plot? Um, <laughs> but basically we pick up on an nightly entertainment show, a kind of light entertainment comedy program uh, where the host is doing his sort of Jimmy Fallon-esque monologue and the crew is bantering about the fact that the host looks nervous. They think he's going to propose to his girlfriend live on air because he's kind of, uh, he likes a bit of the dramatic. Um, and as the broadcast goes on, he gets more and more nervous. And at the end, he turns to the camera, addresses it directly, pulls a gun from underneath the desk and shoots himself in the head. So that's the opening chapter. And then it uh -huh. spins into a crime novel of how can that be murder? And what is wrong with this uh, scenario? And how can it be a murder when a million people watched it happen live on television? It's such yeah. an amazing beginning. Like, it really does hook you straight into that story. Um, yeah, all downhill from there. But the beginning, yeah, <laughs> no, really. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, because uh, soon after that, uh, we... we uh, rendezvous with the character of Jack, which uh, I believe you're bringing forward from uh, your previous novel, Greenlight. Um, yeah. And he's fascinating. He's in yeah. prison. <laughs> he has an eating disorder and he's not your, um, he's not your stereotypical uh, protagonist of a crime thriller, is he? No. So uh, it is a standalone novel, but he's a returning, you know, he's kind of a, an amateur detective. So a new case that he kind of goes into. Um, but one of the things that I really wanted with Jack, which is that in both novels, Jack can't take a punch. So he's not fighting people. He can't walk in Reacher style and clear a room. If anybody hits him, he's going down. So that was kind of really important to me to make sure that he... He was a bit more realistic, like he's a bit more thrown into these situations in a way in which if he's going toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with a villain or a murderer, like he's at a serious disadvantage. Um, but Jack, he's also very unique. As you said, he's got, um, he battles with bulimia throughout the books. In this one, he's sort of got a hold on it, but it's more representative of his um, PTSD because his brother was injured when they were younger. Uh, and so it's him grappling with that as well as his, his own masculinity and, and that kind of thing while he is um, looking into these cases. Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a terrific character. And, um, yeah, the, the, the further you go into the book, the, um, the more he has to offer. It's, it's not just the, um, the mystery itself of this uh, bizarre live-to-television uh, explosion of uh, brains that uh, unravels. It's also Jack himself. Um, it's it all kind of twists around the reader in a um, fantastically thrilling way. Um, tell me about um, how you feel about the true crime genre. Uh, it's kind of taken off in the past decade, and high profile documentaries like um, uh, and podcasts like Teachers Pet, Serial, um, Making a Murderer. Um, They've inspired renewed interest in particular cases. Um, 
and sometimes change outcomes for um, the accused and for victims. Um, does the change of medium, in your opinion, um, from what's traditionally been done in print media and books and, and, and magazines and newspapers uh, to the more maybe emotive and maybe more intimate um, realms of podcasting and documentary, has that changed the kind of implications of journalism in your mind? Yeah, I think it has. It was quite a heavy theme of my first book was more specifically to do with Jack's documentarian making. In this one, he revisits the TV studio because he used to work there, but he's not making a documentary as he was in the first book. But I think that what I was trying to say with that was that uh, it's hard for audiences to really know which ones are serious documentaries and which ones are uh, made purely for entertainment value. And the cuts and concessions that get made in those shows um, in order to cut to an ad break or isolate a certain element that is particularly suspenseful or intriguing, I don't think can ever come from an unbiased perspective from somebody who is trying to make entertainment. Uh, so I kind of dealt with that in the first round and uh, in the first novel. And I read, I read a book on making a murderer by the the slimy guy who's portrayed really badly in the show, Ken Kratz. And the weird thing about it was I'm not, I didn't read the book. You go, oh man, the TV show is completely fabricated. This guy was wronged. I read the book and I thought, man, he is slimy. And also he is saying things that aren't in the TV show. And also the TV show is saying things that he's ignoring. So they're both, lying like they're both in the um, business of self-preservation and image and when it comes down to image and especially when these days things are live streamed broadcast I mean they go out straight away the difference I suppose in the old journalism stuff is that the you know the case gets run or, or a modern one that worked quite well I think is the golden state killer you know this is a long-standing investigation the book comes forward it brings new evidence it interacts with the case but when the case is happening while the TV show is being broadcast, um, I think that it's impossible to find an unbiased jury for, on the most basic level. Uh, and I think that's, that was one of the core, core issues with the first one, with the first novel in which Jack makes sensational edits to his television program and then everyone believes that a potential serial killer is innocent and he starts to feel guilty about it. Uh, so, yeah, no, I think it's changed quite dramatically and I think it's having, having a real effect um, in the way in which we can communicate these things that normally take time and effort. But if you can package it up and get it out there and get a lot of people to watch it, then I think there's risks involved there. Not saying that, I mean, there's lots of great, great podcasts and TV shows, but I think there's risks. Can you um, tell us a little bit about some of the real cases that are referenced um, in this book? Because you've got a lot of little um, snippets of, transcripts and, and and real cases that I found fascinating just made me wonder um, how much research you did uh, for this book. Yeah, it was interesting in terms of the research level because I try to research just enough to get the story moving. Um, so in this one, a large component of the what kind of makes 
the uh, crime is believability because it sounds, when it all comes out, it sounds a bit crazy, but it is real. And so I wanted to make sure that it was believable because it is happening in the world. Um, and I'm being oblique about that because it will give away the ending. Um, but in terms of the specific examples that I used, while I was writing the book, it was It was weird how every day a new example of what I was writing about, that I was trying to be right on the edge, on the cutting edge of, of this happening, that every day a new one would happen. You know, um, a, a live stream on Facebook where something violent happened or, you know, these kind of things, they'd land in the press. Um, but what really kind of got me started was in the 70s there was a newsreader who shot themselves on live television um and it's a bit it's a bit wobbly nobody's really sure of her motivations um but it seemed you know it seemed a genuine um disgruntlement at her life her job this kind of perfect storm that led her to that choice um but then and that one's reasonably famous um but then there's more, you know, there's there's live broadcasts of um, police chases that the, they don't cut in time and, and stuff happens. Or or there was a there was an American mayor who at a press conference, he was in the middle of a press conference and then he turned, this isn't in the book because it, I only found it out after I'd finished it, but he turned to the camera and he said, if anyone's squeamish, please leave. And then he pulled out a gun. Uh, and it's just... It's, it was mind-blowing, the, the amount of stuff um, that I was reading about it. But then the other part of the, uh, part of the book is, like, like, what can you say to someone? What words can you use and how dangerous can words be? And, you know, then there's all those examples of, um, you know, there was um, a girl on Instagram who put up a live poll and she just put up the poll, should I live or should I die? Those weren't the, the words that she used. But, and then people voted on the poll and... They voted for her to die, and she she um, jumped off a, a parking lot, and so that kind of stuff. I just thought, wow, this is everywhere, and so that's the kind of um, research that I did for this, which was not good for my Google history and recommended Facebook ads. Ooh, I get a lot of yeah. I get a lot of therapy ads on uh, on Facebook. I'll bet you do. It's uh, that's heavy stuff. <laughs> It is heavy. The um, novel is not as heavy as uh, as it sounds. The novel sounds. is a, I mean, is, a, is a massive page turner. Um, but yeah, you, uh, you you touch on a a lot of really um, interesting and heavy stuff, um, uh, which uh, just invites the reader to kind of you know you, you speed through this book, but then you kind of ruminate over um, uh, what you've actually talked about and and its real world implications. Um, that's actually something I, I, I want to ask about, and I don't expect you to have a like a perfect answer for this, but crime fiction by its nature sensationalizes traumatic experience or taboo content, and uh, suicide is about as traumatic as it gets, and in a lot of our society it's still very taboo. Um, how do you approach that content in fiction as an author in a thoughtful way that will give that will do more good than harm 
Yeah, absolutely. I was very aware while I was writing uh, this book of the the nature of what I was talking about and the delicacy required in talking about it. Um, I think there's a there's a balance to be found on. I mean, it, it is it is a, a a page turner, so it has to be kind of scary, but you don't want to demonize or romanticize either side of the coin. Um, so, I mean, the best answer I can give is that I did my best to play that balance. But I think that the themes of the book highlight dangers of society um, and certain influences that open up the conversation away from merely that that opening scene. So I kind of steer it into talking about the the larger the larger issue rather than just focusing on specifically suicide. Um, and I think that it has a reasonable amount of closure. Um, and so it comes full circle to discuss the issue. I think the issue gets looked at from all points of view. And at the end, I, I do believe it, um, it says useful things about, about the world. But yeah, it's very, it's very delicate. I mean, a lot of novels, it's really tricky with crime just on a, on a, purely craft level because if you have a crime novel that opens with a suicide it is not a suicide i mean it just isn't otherwise there's no book you know so you open the classic detective novel where it opens with someone who's jumped off the roof of a hotel i mean they've been pushed like it's just it's inherent in the reader's bias that they're reading this type of novel and so that's what it is um so you're also playing around with that trope as well and trying to make that work in the most interesting way from your readers who have their set expectations of what will and should happen in a crime novel and how you can subvert that. Um, one, oh, go on, <laughs> one of the things I found really thought-provoking in the novel was, um, you know, you touch on, uh, I guess, the perception of your main character is um, an adult man with an eating disorder, which is a disorder that's not generally associated with adult men. And then, again, treading super carefully here because I don't want to be too spoilery, but your kind of um, method of murder is is also one that's not um, commonly associated outside teenagers. And there was, I don't know, that really stuck with me. It really kind of got me thinking about how it's not actually possible for these things to only affect one gender or one age group. Um, but there's a real perception of what a grown man can be susceptible to. Um, yeah, I was very interested in that. I think to, uh, <laughs> I'll put myself in the category of young person here. I'm 31, but I'll put myself in the category of young person. But it's interesting to me that there are things that, say, 50-year-old people will assume are exclusive to 15-year-old people. But I think that everyone in their 20s now, I, I kind of feel like stuff that was, you know, and this is generalising, but as stuff that you used to grapple with in your teens and then get through and get your mortgage and your steady job and then you go through. I mean, I don't think millennials are really just growing out of things in the same way growing out of things is not the right right wording there but i don't think that the pace of the world these days 
and the way in which that we are now paying attention to people and how they're feeling, I think we're actually realising that, no, these things aren't just things that people grapple with for a couple of years when they're finding themselves when they're 19. It's stuff that can carry through to a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old and and a 50-year-old. And, and so it, it keeps going. I think we've just pretended that it hasn't keep, kept going for a while. And so I think that the world's kind of opened up a bit more to that. But I was very, you know, I'm very aware that I just, I kind of felt to Jack's specific struggles. Um, I mean, it comes from, like I said, it comes from PTSD and it comes from his definition of masculinity. And part of that is the shame that builds on him because he, he doesn't want to be seen as, as, as it being shameful, which therefore loads the shame on. Um, but I just think that detectives in detective novels, they sometimes have problems that aren't real problems. You know, they just drink a bit or mainly drink a bit or going through a divorce <laughs> or something. And I'm just like, that's not a real person. You know, what what could this person be doing? And Jack, you know, he works in TV. He's 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 got those pressures of things, um, even though it's not an his illness isn't based on his image or his definition of image. It's very based on his self-worth, which I think can be quite crippling behind the tele- scenes of television and stuff. So I just wanted to make him real um, and the same with the crime as well. And I just think it's it's a valid perspective that everyone struggles. You can't just say, oh, that's a, that's a 16-year-old. Mm. Speaking of struggles, um, um, <laughs> I, I just... I'm I'm super envious of your um, your slasher lifestyle um, as an author, a comedian, and uh, a um, uh, you work at Curtis Brown. <laughs> I'm really envious of this, so I'm just gonna like plow plow you with some questions now. Um, uh, what came first, books or comedy? And do you have like a first love? Books came first, but I first got paid to do comedy. Is how the easy you, way of putting it. How did you get your start in comedy? Um, when I was in high school, I entered a competition to do stand up, and I won. And I got sent to the Melbourne Comedy Festival and did a gig with Will Anderson, which was lots of fun. Whoa. And that was in oh gosh, two thousand and five or something. And it's addictive. When you do a good gig with a big star in a big theatre um, to a 1,000 people, you think, this is magic. Everything you say in that room, because it was designed, there were like 12, 12 people um, who were young from across Australia giving it their kind of first go. It, the room was prime. So everything you said, they clapped at. Uh, and then I went back home and I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. And then every time you go on stage for the next five, six years, it's just not like that at all. And you're like, oh, man, this is really hard. But that's kind of how it, how it started for me. Um, and then, you know, you make friends at the various festivals and then it's always nice to go back year on year. But then I went to university while I was doing stand-up. I studied engineering, which I despised. Um, I got a job in engineering, which I despised. Then I moved to Sydney to do stand-up as well. And I'm not giving away any industry secrets here that I was a comedian moving to Sydney and I was broke. Uh, so I went back to uni and did a master's in book publishing because I thought, 
you know what, this is kind of always what I wanted to do. So let's let's broaden my uh, broaden my horizons just in case I'm not the the next Jerry Seinfeld, um, which is an awareness that I think every young comedian has to visit at some point in their life. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. And so then I got um, got started again in publishing and and, and started writing again and um, found that they I was able to do both. Um, what is the uh, best and worst um, stand-up gig you've ever done? Oh, um, I mean, I think all 10 of the worst would have had to be in the last three months over Zoom. But okay. um, <laughs> we, we did one on Twitch. We did one on Twitch um, and I found out a lot of things about myself from the comment sections that I was unaware of prior oh, to wow. the Twitch comment sections. Um, I think the one of the worst that I've ever done was an audience member heckled us and said he could sing opera better than we could do comedy. And it was like this weedy, you know, 15-year-old kid. And we were like, all right. And then he could. And it was awesome. <laughs> and then for some reason, the rest of the audience had a bevy of five-cent coins and started pegging five-cent coins at this stage. Um <laughs> which at that point in my career basically doubled my fee. So I wasn't complaining, but it's just there was this 15-year-old kid warbling opera on the, from the audience and then we were getting belted with five-cent coins. That's probably one of the worst. <laughs> um, and then best gigs. I mean, there have been a few. This is probably a worse gig, but it's also the best. Mel Gibson walked out of one of my shows once, which was quite good. He was in Sydney. <laughs> he was in Sydney filming um, Hacksaw Ridge, which is a, I think, a 2016 movie. Um, and yeah, he came to the comedy store, and there were a bunch of comedians on. It's not just me, but he walked out halfway through, and we were all trying to decide who offended. Who offended Mel Gibson so much that he decided <laughs> that he would walk out? But I think I think um, the yeah the best gigs are the other surprise ones where maybe you're at a festival or maybe you're at um, you know you're at the local comedy club, but you kind of know people are in town because it gets around the comedians, and so everyone kind of heads down. And someone like Kevin Hart. Tiffany Haddish, you know, Amy Schumer will 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 pop in and, it, you know, everyone loves it, even if you're not on stage. It's a real nice community kind of thing. And um, um, I'll go on, Sarah, go on. Well, no, I don't want to – I wanted to flip back to either side of midnight, but I also want to hear more comedy stories. So if your question was a comedy story. No, no, we, we should probably talk about the book. No? It's okay. a book podcast. Okay. I've made myself will... sound – more famous than I am as a comedian. I will just add that <laughs> caveat. I've been in a lot of rooms with a lot of people, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm firmly in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I my question kind of um, straddles both your comedy and your um, and your most recent book because I'm dying to know, as um, as a, a twin with a, a who performs with their brother having written a book about a set of twins with a history of performing together. What does your brother think of this book? Yeah, so he's not too happy that I <laughs> killed him off. So <laughs> the, 
the per- the person that dies in the opening chapter has a twin brother, and that's kind of what kicks off the. He doesn't believe his twin brother would do that. Um, so yeah, James is a bit upset that I've killed him off. But the one that dies is the good-looking, charismatic one. So I ah. kind of told, I kind of told my brother, look. You can choose to be offended that I killed you off and take the compliment that you're the charismatic, good-looking one, or you can admit that I'm the charismatic, good-looking one and not be killed off. It's up to you. So <laughs> his, it's his choice how offended he wants to be. <laughs> but I think there's there's a few... I mean, it's, it's not really... Uh, I haven't drawn that much from him and me. I think I drew a few things in terms of overarching what brothers are and what brothers can mean to each other but in terms of the people I I I think they came out pretty different but I was I was keen to write something on on twins because like I said before it's part of the craft is you see twins in a crime novel and you start to think what's going to happen here and and again it's subverting expectations and not um not giving the readers those um standard expectations with it and it's called either side of midnight because they're born. One of them's born ten minutes to midnight, and the other's born ten minutes after. So they're actually born on different days, which, which I thought is was so fun. cool. The moment yeah. you know, whenever you're reading a book, and the moment where the title starts to make sense is always awesome. Oh, you I have can't... to say the title in the book. That's one of my rules because I just <laughs> love it, and it's a really tacky thing to do, but it's also super awesome. It's very it's awesome. awesome. It's that moment when the bloke puts on his dark sunglasses in CSI Miami and the rock trick rock track comes. That's that's what I see when a character says the name of my book in my book. That's perfect. Um, your professional work at Curtis Brown Literary Agency. Um, how does that um, sit with your work as an author? Um, does it make is it an inside scoop on on what um, a professional would be looking for in a book to publish? But is it also a a horrifying um, comparing yourselves uh, with the the giants that you that you work with? <laughs> is what's what, what's the benefit and what's the what's the uh, pain? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I think you're right. I'll start with the pain and then I'll go to the benefits. But um, it's it's terrifying. There's, you know, we represent some absolutely phenomenal authors who write incredible books quickly. <laughs> so sometimes I can feel, not that they write all write quickly, but one of the personal pressures I feel is that I'm like, oh, my God, they are just, <laughs> you know, they write so well, so fast. And um I'm kind of plugging through mine. I'm I'm a reasonably slow writer, so so sometimes I feel you can feel a bit of um, a bit of pressure there, um, and then I think in terms of benefits, I don't know if it comes. I don't know if working here gives me the inside track on what people are looking for, but I think I know what I like and I know what I don't like, and I think reading a lot of manuscripts by both professionals and aspiring writers i think it it kind of teaches you just the rules of the genre in the same way that reading a lot would so i think that's where i think i think i'm able as a benefit of my job to come up with hooks and openings and things that kind of grab 
and once you have that skill, I think that people do give you a bit more time on reading. And so I think that's probably the most valuable thing that that my background gives me. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, but I'm very aware of, I'm probably more aware than most authors of trends in the, in the market. And so it's very interesting when uh, some of my book is set down the coast, either side of midnight is set in a small coastal town. And it was interesting that a lot of rural authors moved their books to the coast over the last 18 months. Uh, and I was like, I'm already started writing it, but everyone's moving <laughs> to the coast. And so I'm not going to tell you where my next book's set. Not that I led the charge by any means, but uh, that one's a secret because I haven't seen that one be used yet. Oh, intriguing. Um, <laughs> can you tell us anything about the book that you are ploddingly uh, creating next? Um, Outside to be of honest, where it is set? <laughs> to be, uh, it, it, it will be a standalone. Um, yeah, I'm stepping away from Jack had a very complete story in this one. And so I just give him some breathing room. I mean, if this one goes bananas, then I'll, I'll obviously curtail to the demands of, of fans. But um, at the moment, I'm looking at it being a standalone. The only thing I can really tell you about the book is that I'm trying something interesting and there may be a point where I give it to my publisher and they say, start again and do us something else. That's all I can. I think it's going to be really cool if I can pull it off. But at the moment, I'm still figuring out the strands of it. So that's, I guess, if that whets the appetite. But it could also just be another, not just another crime novel. This is a very good crime novel that's coming out now, but it could be a more, a more, a more standard um, uh, whodunit. But I like, I like the ideas. I like playing with the genre a lot. I mean, either side of midnight is is a who done it, but it's also a why done it and a how done it at the same time. And mm -hmm. so that's what I want to do with my next book. I, I want to really uh, push the genre and um, see if I can pull that off. So at the moment, I'm just in the early stages of trying to figure out whether it will create a novel or whether it will be a bit of an idea that doesn't go anywhere. That sounds very interesting. Yeah, we're very excited to see whatever you do next. Uh, this this novel, Either Side of Midnight, is uh, is riveting, um, and I, I, I think you'll do really well with it. In my humble opinion, as um, an amateur uh, bookseller. Well, oh, I agree. You. In my opinion, as a um, criminal mastermind. <laughs> that's really that's really kind. Thank you both, Benjamin Stevenson. Thank you for being on the Booktopia podcast. No worries. Um, if you want to get a copy of Either Side of Midnight or any of Ben's books, uh, go to booktopia.com.au right now. And if you need to talk to someone, uh, call Lifeline. The number one more time is 13 11 14. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.